Hi, welcome to More Lives, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkivia Garner. Thank you for joining us today. We are back with another episode in our Black History Month series. Um, once again, just honoring Black individuals that are recently released or just released from incarceration and going back into their communities. Um, it is also Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. Be sure to show yourself some love today. Show others that are around you some love today. Um, and hopefully you enjoy this topic for that we have for today. Um, I think our topic for today kind of aligns with some of the things with Valentine's Day of, you know, showing love and um, health and wellness. Um, so, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about self-care, reentry, and really looking at Black women and their reentry process as it pertains to self-care, wellness. Um, with us today is Dr. Janae Bonsulove, who is the Director of Research and Advocacy of the National Black Women's Justice Institute. Dr. Bonsulove comes to NBWJI as an activist scholar, policy advocate, and licensed master social worker committed to ending criminalization while supporting the healing of Black women, girls, and non-binary people. She has a decade of research and advocacy experience on issues spanning the criminal and juvenile legal systems with particular interest and expertise in the areas of policing, reentry, and gender-based violence. Um, she holds a PhD in social work from the University of Illinois in Chicago, um, an MA, which is a Master's of Arts in Social Work, Policy and Administration from University of Chicago. And she also got her bachelor's degree in experimental psychology and criminal justice from University of South Carolina. Um, Dr. Bonsulove is also representing, like I said before, the National Black Women's Justice Institute, which works to research, elevate, and educate the public about innovative community-led solutions to address the criminalization of Black women and girls. Um, they also aim to dismantle the racist the racist and patriarchal U.S. criminal legal system and build in this place pathways to opportunity and healing. Um, so, Dr. Bonsalev, we are so grateful to have you here on our show to discuss um, the research that y'all are doing and your experience working with um, Black women and during the reentry process. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, like so great. Um, I'm excited for our conversation today, um, but. Per the usual, and our audience is kind of used to this, of uh, what got you interested in reentry? Um, yeah, what got you interested in reentry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my interest in reentry and really the criminal legal system more broadly comes from a very personal space. Um, you know, growing up, so I'll just say out front, I have at least three generations of people with um, incarceration history or, or convictions in my family. You know, my cousins, my uncles, my grandpa, you know, and I grew up, you know, seeing how, knowing that all of these people are people I love. They're good people, um, not bad people, as, you know, society will have you think, quote unquote, criminals are, right? Um, I know these are good people. And... Um, just watching this intergenerational, just revolving door cycle um, in my own family and seeing how uh, incarceration 
kind of exacerbated or made worse pre-existing conditions like, you know, substance use, mental health issues, um, finding and keeping a job, you know, it just made, it seemed like something was wrong here, um, you know, that I didn't always have the uh, analysis to figure out growing up, but I just knew that uh, there had to be another way to address, you know, social problems, broadly speaking, uh, outside of incarceration, but the U.S. hadn't figured it out yet. Um, and so just watching my own family's journeys, trying to figure out life and, and live live their lives with their full dignity after coming home from whether a short-term you know, jail sentence or uh, you know, a longer-term prison sentence, that got me really interested and passionate about um, really smoothing that path home, have really um, everything from mending relationships that are strained while you are, you know, away in this terrible traumatic place that is prison um, to, again, trying to get it on your feet, get a job, you know, maintain sobriety, all of these things, right? So it just really started in my own family. And, uh, you know, growing, growing into the kind of movement for Black Lives space um, from 2014, I kind of got involved in community organizing and activism, and uh, really started to develop a, a Black feminist lens and understand that although my personal family experience with, uh, you know, incarceration was, it was mostly men in my family affected, I really began to understand that um, Black women are also really uniquely impacted by incarceration in many ways and just kind of really bolstered my interest there as well. So um, yeah, it, it really started from a personal place for me. Yeah, I would say we have a, a in a sense, a very similar story, because that's how my interest started as well of just, I mean, it happens with so many families and, you know, we, we don't realize how many people could probably are in contact with somebody that is incarcerated, has been incarcerated, uh, or whatever the case may be, and is trying to come back out. And it's, it's so difficult to watch. And you're, you are really trying to figure out like, what is happening? Like, or what is not happening that could help them? Um, so. I definitely feel you on that, um, a personal experience. Um, and so, I, and I'm glad you answered that question too, because I was going to ask you what got you interested into Black women um, specifically. But can you share with us, you said that Black women have very unique experiences as far as it relates to either their involvement in the criminal legal system or even just their reentry experiences. Do you care to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think... Uh the impact of incarceration on black women is um is is nuanced and multifaceted and, and not really um discussed widely enough so on one hand but it, in terms of sheer numbers black men are incarcerated more right or there are more black men incarcerated than black women right um but you think about um you know for every black man that's incarcerated think about um you know the the women who are left behind in terms of um, uh, everything from raising kids to shouldering the cost of, um, whether it's the, the monetary cost of the uh, uh, phone calls, 
to you know the the time cost of driving hours to um to pay visits for to prisons that are often hours away from uh where people actually live um you know all all of like black women are definitely impacted by black men's incarceration and also incarcerated uh, incarceration themselves um you know we talk all about the the war on drugs for example a lot of uh, attention is paid to um you know the people that are locked up in terms of uh you know uh wide or, or, or big trafficking cases or um i just feel like black men are often the the face of what we talk about when we talk about the war on drugs but thinking about the number the charges that a lot of women are uh locked up for whether in prison or jail are often drug related or related to um domestic violence and domestic violence of some sort um the drug the war on drugs definitely and disproportionately impacts um black women in the way that we are policed um it's it's yes one pathway to incarceration um and just thinking about the uh the uh, different forms of trauma uh, adverse childhood experiences all of these things that kind of form the pathways to incarceration for women um that is, that is unique and different from men um and a lot of women who are incarcerated are mothers so uh, there's a, this extra layer of um family reunification that often looks a lot different for black women relative to men fighting to get uh custody of their their children back from the state oftentimes um you know because a lot of mothers are the the sole or primary caretakers of their children prior to incarceration um and so having to jump through so many hoops to to get their kids back while you're also trying to do again the basic things of getting a job uh, finding safe and secure housing um you know just your basic needs identification you know just so just so so many things um that I think formerly incarcerated people generally are up against um, and this just extra uh, or additional layers uh, when you're talking about women in particular, especially those who are mothers, um, you know, trying to just get back on track and and, and not just survive, but also thrive um, coming home from, from uh, confinement. Yeah, and I, I thank you for sharing that because that is such an essential thing to remember is a lot of women before they, if we're just talking women in general, are um, mothers before they go in. And there's, when you bring in the intersectionality of race, um, gender, and all these different things, there's a whole lot of different challenges. So when we're talking about um healthcare. Where does healthcare come into play here? Um, Because I know that that's like our topic for today, healthcare and wellness. Yeah. Yeah, so the the medical care in prison uh, participants, one, didn't trust the quality or accuracy of medical care in prison. Um, You know, there were so many cases of uh, medical providers uh, just ignoring participants' needs uh, or, or or treating them for something that they they didn't present for, like for example, um, you know, there were participants who talked about having uh, 
you know, like a gynecological issue and just being given a Tylenol and, you know, <laughs> or uh, just one size fits all band-aid approaches to, to real issues that they were facing. So in that sense, uh, healthcare, being able to access healthcare and take care of their bodies, take care of the, uh, take care of themselves uh, was really important. Just a matter of uh, being able to access and even get to themselves uh, has to kind of follow meeting their critical basic needs. So just so many uh, competing priorities uh, upon release for uh, for Black women as they re-enter society. That's exactly what I'm hearing because, like, we already know that when you incarceration, when you are incarcerated, health just deteriorates because, like you said, quality of care, uh, frequency of care, all those different things. But black women, when they come out, that's still not a priority because they have so many other things that they have to put first before they can even get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. 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 So, but, oh, go ahead. I just I just wanted to add, you know, even though healthcare kind of takes a back seat to some other basic critical needs, when they are able to actually address it, there are there are a lot of um, medical or physical health and mental health needs that uh, that are of, of great concern to to women as they come home. You know, one thing that I think is really important to highlight uh, is that most of our uh, most of the participants in the study had some type of chronic condition, chronic illness. Um, and you know a, a, a top primary health concern among participants was like weight gain and obesity, um, hypertension, reproductive health issues, um, uh, diabetes, high cholesterol, iron deficiencies, you know, these are, these are issues that were exacerbated by the experience of incarceration. You know, for there, there were folks who, you know, being incarcerated 23 hours a day, not really being able to get much exercise, gain so much weight, right? And are, are coming home o- obese and having to manage um, or, or learn how to eat healthier options and portion control and and you know, lower their blood pressure and things like that. So, you know, just thinking about uh, the impact of incarceration on health is not just about the the quality of, of care in prisons, which we know is not great, but it's also just the condition of incarceration, uh, you know, not being able to have access to the healthy foods you need, uh, you need to eat, access to regular exercise, um, and, and things like that really exacerbating, um, you know, poor health. Um, so those are those are issues that definitely came up as concerns. And thinking about mental health, um, you know, I think one thing is that is important to name is a lot of participants had um, experience of uh, just having some stigma around mental health care, or at least seeking professional uh, mental health support, right? Just whether it's from other people in prison or just like a, a cultural or, or family stigma around 
oh, you know, you only need to go talk to someone if you're quote unquote crazy, right? But um, as they have developed in their own uh, journeys of, of self-discovery and it, you know, really have come to a conclusion of like mental health support is actually very critical. You know, if I'm going to uh, live my life to the fullest and, um, you know, and get my kids back and uh, uh, obtain and maintain employment and really take care of myself wholly, that does include mental health support. Now, granted, you know, uh, mental health support doesn't always look like seeing a psychologist or therapist uh, to to folks, but a lot of it does, right? But also, you know, just leaning on a supportive community, um, whether it's a, a AA or NA sponsor, whether it is uh, someone in your spiritual community, so a pastor um, or, you know, other church member, because spirituality was also a really important uh, theme that came up. But generally, mental health uh, and emotional health is a priority for women uh, coming home because, as you can imagine, with all of the stressors of you know trying to establish themselves and uh, just get oriented to to life on the outside, especially if you're someone who has been um, you know locked up for uh, a decade, fifteen years, twenty years, which you know a lot of the women we talk to were. You know, it is a a jolt of reality coming coming uh, home to a to a world where that you don't even know, or that just looks totally different from you know when you were last out, right? So, um, having support for for the mental and emotional health is a is of great great importance, um, and the ability to access um, you know professional. Uh, mental mental health support definitely varies depending on what your health insurance looks like and what it covers. And so, you know, that just kind of speaks to some of the barriers to care that, you know, maybe we can get into. Um, but, but yeah, those, those are some of the things that, that come up when um, talking about formerly incarcerated Black women's hierarchy of needs uh, as they come home and just what are some of the things that they prioritize? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that is such an essential piece of like prison is not built to maintain emotional, mental, physical health or anything like that. So that is a really big, it does have a really big impact when people come out. Um, and um, it's something we really need to be addressing um, in the government and providing more services in there. I know that will require more funding um, for sure. Um, but I guess also just you were talking that you went through, and I'm actually glad because I was going to ask you what type of things came up as far as of health, health illnesses, where are they talking about? So thank you for sharing that too. Um, but how, so how do they take care of these needs? Yeah. So when I, when I ask, so let me just pause and say, uh, it, for context of, of this study, we talked to 22 Black women with uh, some sort of history of incarceration um, in the state of California. And um, the I would say over half of participants were over 50. Um, and 
had a total time of incarceration of over 10 years. We had some participants who had been sentenced to life or like 25 to life or something like that and either had like a sentence commuted or um, was able to parole. And so we really had some 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 folks who did some uh, did a long time uh, in confinement. And so in asking, you know, what what is self-care to you? How do you how do you take care of yourself? What does that look like? Um, and you know, you get a range of of, of responses, right? So self-care activities that support black women's holistic wellness include, of course, you know, basic grooming like bathing and um, you know, establishing routines. Uh, it was very important, keeping up, you know, one's appearance by, you know, trying to do your nails or hair, taking the time to pause and be present, um, especially in solitude. But beyond that, you know, some major themes around say self-care included as one participant called soul care, which, uh, you know, is basically, you know, spiritual connectedness, spiritual practices. Uh, that, that was a major theme. You know, spirituality is really, really important and not when I say spiritual, I don't necessarily mean religious. You know, while there are some folks who uh, practice Christianity, others distinguished between what it means to be religious and spiritual um, and really value practices like, you know, meditation um, or just like learning to be present and aware of the sensations in your body as sources of information for, for how you feel and how you should act. Like, you know, uh, and just this notion of being connected to something bigger than yourself um, was just really important for um, Black women's sources of strength and resilience and grounding. Um, so self-care for a lot of a lot of the people we spoke to was fell under the kind of realm of soul care. Um, and beyond that, you know, they're taking care of their physical health. Um, partic uh, there were many participants who did not have a primary care provider before incarceration. Um, you know, either just went to the emergency room when there was something severe uh, that needed immediate attention or urgent care, but you know, no regular like this is the this is my doctor that I go to. You know for X, Y, and Z, right? And that wasn't the case for everyone, right? But but mostly. But post-release, you know, uh, and especially as, as you get older, not surprisingly, your, your health becomes more important, right? You have more ailments, you have, um, you know, more pains here, or you're at a higher risk for this and that. And so, again, the average age of uh, participants in the study uh, was about 50 years old. So, um, so many women over 50 are realizing that like, Hey, I do need to, to pay attention to what's going on in my body and really attend to my health. And so, um, finding a primary care physician, um, and other specialists like, you know, uh, gynecologists, things like that, uh, are really important. And, you know, so learning practices like scheduling, and keeping appointments, um, you know, going through the process of trying to find 
a primary care provider and learning how to navigate uh, private insurance, uh, you know, these, which was not always easy. And that's actually one of, one of the barriers to care that, that came up is, you know, just knowledge or lack thereof around how health insurance works. Um, you know, and thankfully, most participants were able to eventually obtain full-time employment. So we're able to access, you know, private or employer-sponsored uh, insurance. But even with that, you know, not fully understanding like the the way that co-pays and deductibles and all that works. So, you know, and trying to take care of their physical health to, you know, get this um, well woman exam or, you know, what have you and getting stuck with a, you know, $6,000 bill after that, that they had no idea was coming, right, um, is, is definitely, definitely a barrier. But the, the act and intention of um, going to the doctor to uh, either seek treatment or get preventative care is, is one way that particip participants do take care of themselves. Um, and again, mental health uh, is a big thing. Um, so there's a broad sense of importance around um, not just eating healthy and getting more exercise and being proactive about physical health, but also um, seeking out supportive community to really lean on. Um, and I think just relatedly, um, the, the importance of mentorship, finding someone with lived experience that can, you, that they could relate to, um, but also able to help guide them and hold them accountable to, uh, to their goals and their growth was also very important. So taken together, these are some of the things that um, really help facilitate self-care um, for formerly incarcerated women. Uh, so that, you know, again, basics around, you know, routines and, um, you know, just self-upkeep, but spiritual connectedness, supportive community, um, and mental health and medical services, uh, and above all that, just self-love, I think, are kind of the components of self-care um, for former incarcerated Black women. And you were talking about a little bit about mentorship. Is Are the mentors also the people who kind of like help assist them in, you know, finding primary care physicians or mental health professionals or, or are there other individuals that help them with that or? In some cases. So, you know, there are, um, so there were folks that we talked to who uh, were able to get into a, um, a pro uh, like a reentry program that uh, whether, whether the program is uh, sobriety focused, like a sober living program or um, housing focused, uh, able to find mentors within those spaces. Um, so I'll give an example. I mentioned that the study uh, was focused in the state of California and uh, there is an organization called A New Way of Life um, that was founded and headed by Susan Burton, who was also um, a member of the advisory committee for this study. And um, we had several participants 
that you know were either had went through or was currently you know at that program and uh one of the awesome things about a new way of life is so much of the staff are formerly incarcerated themselves formerly incarcerated women themselves who have been where you know the the people who are you know, living in the the housing or, or in the family reunification programs or what have you, they have been where they are, right? So they're able to um, kind of speak from experience and like while helping to guide them or, or navigate them through, you know, the the different elements of, of what they need to 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 be well. Whether it's you know, here's what you need to do to to get your Medicaid or you know. Here's the connection to legal support to help you with family unification, you know, things like that. So like, you know, just being able to connect on a basic human level of, of the shared experience of, uh, of incarceration and, uh, and, and all of the things that kind of come with that, that you, you know, just can't, you can't, um, not everyone can connect on that way, uh, you know, from from lived experience. So that that was something that was uh, highly valuable that most participants were able to get through um, a reentry program of some sort, like a new way of life, for example. I actually have been seeing, like, just in the field lately, people um, doing more research on like peer mentoring and peer mentoring, not in the sense of like me mentoring somebody that's formerly incarcerated, but no, another person that's formerly incarcerated with a shared experience, helping and assisting and kind of guiding them through. And that has, um, I guess, like it's some really great research out there, just talking about the effectiveness of that and um, and the level of support people get from it. So I'm glad that the women were able to, you know, have that and to have someone, you know, support and help them facilitate those processes. Yeah, I think I think the the most um, common or accessible example of like what a a peer mentorship relationship looks like is like a um, the AA model of having a sponsor, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are familiar with how that works, and so this idea of um, you know peer support has has been around for a long time as it relates to substance use. Um, or, or even mental illness, but I think the idea of peer support as it relates to incarceration is somewhat new, mm-hmm. but but all the more or, or, or just as important, and um, and I think needs to be uh, honestly, I think is a best practice, um, you know, from the from the perspective of of formerly incarcerated women that I spoke to, um, like I think should be. This is one recommendation that that we at MBWJ are offering is, you know, one element of community-based reentry programs um, should use peer support services or facilitate connections to peer specialists that have relevant lived experiences um, that can provide support and guidance to women as they begin their reentry journeys, because we've just seen how impactful it can actually be. I agree. And I think, like, you know, seeing somebody on the other side of where you're trying to go uh, but yeah. where you're trying to be can be really empowering and be uh, provide people with a lot of hope because uh, that's one thing I've learned people don't necessarily have hope or they don't believe that they're that they can thrive 
Most of the time they don't. Um, but having that peer mentor, like they've been through this process and they've made it to this side of where they're thriving in a sense, um, can be just very empowering to me, I feel like. Yes, for sure. Um, well, Dr. Bonsu, I want to ask you, um, why do you think that it's important that we talk about self-care during the reentry process for Black women um, or just, you know, holistically considering wellness? Why is that important uh, for us as a community um, and if we're trying to, you know, promote reformation, I mean, rehabilitation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think self-care is it's self-care and just holistic wellness is uh, like that that is and should be the conversation when we talk about um, you know, healthcare as it relates to formerly incarcerated women or just um, you know, just successful reentry, period. You can't so I think if you ask maybe five different people in the, you know criminal legal system space, like what successful reentry looks like. You might get five different answers. Um, you might get people who say, well, reentry is successful as long as uh, the person doesn't go back to prison and go back to jail. Well, I mean, that's one indicator of success, right? But um, if, you, if you are in community and um, you have uh, a mental illness that is uh, not being treated or you don't have um, access to medication for if, if you if you do need or have uh, uh, medication or if you have um, you know uh, uh, chronic disease or physical ailments that you are not or not are not able to uh, have attended to if you don't have a um, a home like a safe secure place to uh, lay your head uh, to even practice different forms of self-care, whether self-care for you means um, taking some time to be still and and and, and meditate and really be with yourself um, or do your nails. If you don't have a, a like a physical place to actually do that, um, how can you how can you consider? your reentry to be successful, right? If you don't have the tools to actually live your life <laughs> in, in, in full dignity. Um, and so, you know, I think the the different tools that um, that make up, or I, I would say that the infrastructure to be able to facilitate a self-care, um, for women who are coming home are really important. So when I say infrastructure, I mean everything from you know being able to access employment. Number one, I mean we already know uh, the quote unquote scarlet letter that comes with having a, a criminal history and and that barrier to employment um, existing for Black women. The unemployment rate is even higher than it is for men. Um, it's, uh, I believe, according to the la the latest data, I think it was from 2018, um, black, formerly incarcerated Black women's unemployment was 43%, right? So given that, you know, access to uh, private insurance, access to just income, um, 
you know, all these things come through employment. And if you don't have, if you're not able to secure employment, that's a major barrier to how you're able to <laughs> take care of yourself. One, I already talked about housing, um, access to health insurance, even if you're, if you are able to get Medicaid, um, for example, even within Medicaid, your, your options, um, are somewhat limited relative to other private insurance providers. Um, you know, and beyond that, I think the stigma and discrimination that, uh, so many participants talked about from uh, healthcare providers themselves, I think is, is really important to note. Uh, you know, healthcare providers can often make assumptions about formerly incarcerated Black women based on, um, you know, their own implicit biases that often further marginalize, you know, an already marginalized population, right? Um, to the point where they are not able or willing to get the care that they need, um, which increases their vulnerability to chronic illness uh, and unmet mental health needs. Again, impeding their efforts to live their fullest and healthiest lives. So um, talking about self-care and holistic wellness implicates so many, implicates and highlights so many things that are, um, <laughs> wrong with the the criminal legal system and uh just the the ways that we as a as a society as a whole take care of um or or, or really a better way of saying it disregard um black women who have a history of incarceration so there's so much that needs to be so much that needs to be done um on the part of Correctional facilities on the part of policymakers, legislators on the part of community-based reentry programs and healthcare service providers um, that will help enable Black women to really practice self-care in the holistic ways that they need to when they're coming home from incarceration. And can I ask a question? I don't know if you have this information or not, but I was just thinking about something as you were talking. Are they required to disclose their status as like being previously incarcerated or having a felony conviction on health insurance applications or uh, medical forms? Um, I, I don't believe so. I don't believe that information is explicitly asked or has to be disclosed. Um, okay. But one thing that, that did come up though um, in these interviews that we conducted in the study is that uh, participants themselves felt compelled to disclose their incarceration history to providers because, um, because they wanted to make sure that they were getting the proper treatment. Um, so for example, um, there's one participant uh, who said that, you know, incarceration always came up when I wanted to get proper medical treatment because you've got to be honest when you talk to doctors because they need to know what to do to save your life. You can't leave anything out. Um, and so, you know, uh, if there's a question of like, oh, well, there's this big gap in your medical history, what is that about? You know that it comes up it's like oh well that gap is because i was in prison for 10 years right um and you know i, I got this procedure done while i was in in incarcerated so like you should know that as you look for x y or z right so you know 
participants themselves most of the time voluntarily disclose that information in order to make sure that they're getting the the proper care. Um, but I don't think that it's required on any type of um, form for insurance or anything like that. Yeah, I would hope not. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that because when you were talking about the stigma and I was like, well, you know, how, you know, how do they know that? Um, but I think that that makes sense, like you said, and that's like gaps in history or if you had certain procedures and, you know, um, when they do find primary care physicians, they need to know that information. Um, so yeah, I was just trying to figure out where the, um, you know, how do they initially find out uh, yeah. PCPs and in the onset of the stigma, but that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, so, so, and you were talking about earlier, you mentioned one of the recommendations that um, your organization that you work for is doing is peer mentors. Um, what other recommendations would you suggest or does the organization suggest needs to be done to better support women um, in their holistic health as they re-enter? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest recommendations is uh, pre-release re-entry planning, you know, and in continuity of care or aftercare based on a comprehensive, just really critical needs assessment. Um, you know, when you don't have a plan, uh, you know, when you're when you're being released, it's really hard to try to navigate systems and navigate your needs from from scratch without without you know any type of compass um you know and when i say comprehensive critical needs assessment i mean really considering um considering all of the elements of 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 your of one's life so like in a in an ideal world when before a woman is released from prison you know someone would sit down with them where you know community-based mental health and substance use treatment providers, healthcare coverage providers, housing and other social supports and advocacy organizations are identified, right? Um, you know, needs assessments should also consider the woman's relationships with loved ones to understand, you know, who might be available in her network to support her recovery if applicable, um, or what relationships may need to be considered with caution or even severed during her transition back to community, right? Um, this needs assessment, you know, determining whether um, access to medical records and screenings or, um, or access to assessments that may have uh, been conducted while incarcerated are available to com the community-based providers that they might come in contact to after their release. Um, you know, being able to facilitate record sharing, um, you know, like the, these things are, are super important because the status quo for uh, for many women is being released um, with with two hundred dollars in a in a in a bus ticket, right? And just being being dropped off, you know. So I think uh, pre release free entry planning that takes into full account uh, connection to community based providers, housing, um, and other social supports is of critical importance. Um, so I think that's, that's the top recommendation, I think. Um, but I think for community-based reentry programs, uh, some recommendations, one, you think, given that we're talking about, um, women here, I think it's, 
uh, uh, many women who are mothers think it's really critical for reentry programs to provide childcare and transportation options um, to help aid the ability for for one to participate um, and also supports for family reunification need to be built into uh, reentry programs to you know also include like legal support to help gain or regain custody of children, include parenting education, child-friendly housing. Um, you know, there are some um, housing providers or shelters that are that are not all family-friendly, you know, are, are not all um, welcoming to children, right? And that is, that's of critical importance. Um, and I think just at the basic level, having a uh, trauma-informed practices being embedded in, uh, in reentry programs approach, um, especially given that with women, um, trauma trauma is just kind of embedded in, uh, in many women's pathways to incarceration. Um, and so having a trauma-informed approach um, is just, is really important. I think uh, with providers being that, how much stigma and discrimination came up um, and some of the participants' experiences with different types of providers, whether we're talking about medical or mental health providers. Um, I think looking at, you know, implicit, implicit bias training, um, also thinking about women's ability to, to pay for services is super important. So um, service providers offering flexible options to pay for services like sliding scales or um, payment plans or things like that should be uh, standard, you know, not an exception to to the rule. So, you know, those are some top line things that um, I think are policy and practice recommendations uh, for different stakeholders um, who have a have a hand in um, making the reentry journeys of of Black women successful when they come home. Yeah, I think all of those are really great, and they're. And and they're not like super huge things that require a whole lot to do. Like um, they're very practical, you know, right. sliding fee skills. It's, it's not a policy you have to go and change and, you know, go through all the counting and voting for um, very small and practical things that can be done. And before we get out, I do want to ask one question of, you know, if you if you want the audience to remember one thing about our conversation, um, what would it be? So I think one thing that I want listeners to remember uh, is I, I want to actually quote a participant um, who said that, she said, I take care of my mind, my body, and my soul. And those are priorities to me by all means necessary because nobody's going to care for me the way that I can care for myself. Um, and I think that was a really powerful statement because, you know, there are so many barriers to taking care of, of yourself. I think for, for everyone, but especially for people with incarceration history. Um, and, you know, the, but the, there is a sense of control that you have over, um, over your self-care in the in the sense of just loving yourself and, and prioritizing yourself in the way that you can. Uh, and so I think that is an important lesson for everyone to 
to to hold and keep in their in their daily practice, whether you have an incarceration history or not. Um, taking care of your mind, your body, and soul are all key components to what it means to be healthy. So, you know, I, I just want, if listeners don't remember anything else, <laughs> is to uh, to try to do what you can in your in your everyday practice to be to be healthy, to take care of your mind, body, and soul. And, and if I can add to one piece that you said earlier too, is that we all have those same needs. Um, regardless of our histories, whether we're criminally ju- criminal justice involved or not. Um, and just to be mindful of that when we are encountering or interacting with people that have justice involvement, is we all have the same needs and they all need to be fulfilled. Um, so I just wanted to add that little piece in there. But I do thank you so much, Dr. Bonsalo, for coming on. Um, I enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, I really hope that the audience is able to take something from this um, and share it with somebody else, or hopefully they just learned something new about, you know, re-entry in general. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> well, as always, you all, we really hope you enjoyed this episode um, and we hope you learned something from it. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Bonsalove or the organization, the National Black Women Justice Institute. I will make sure I put all of their um, social media uh, platforms in the description box. I will put hers in the description box as well, as well as just any additional information about trying to learn about the experiences of Black women um, or just about self-care in general for the reentry process. Um, I do hope you all have a great Valentine's Day. Remember to show some love to yourself and show to show some love to others. And if you enjoyed this episode, please push subscribe and follow us on Instagram and More Life the Reentry Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>